Thank you. Thank you. Despite the, the warning that uh, uh, Dean Goyette has given you, I will not speak interminably this afternoon, although it may seem like that. Uh, I also want to say that uh, I think I should really get uh, endorsement rights because uh, I'm, I'm allergic to virtually everything in Florida, and my voice is, disappears randomly uh, the last 18 hours or so. So uh, I thought, you know, this lecture is coming to you courtesy of Ricola. This ought, you know, I think if I write this into them, I ought to get something, you know. I mean, we'll see. Uh, it, it's, it's a very great joy to return to speak at Thomas Aquinas College to celebrate its patronal feast. This is especially true at a moment when throughout the world many institutions have lost or are losing their identity as serious Catholic institutions of higher and universal learning. Those lights that shine brightly are, are thus all the more precious. The purpose of this lecture is to direct our minds toward the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, which remains a sure source of instruction and authoritative teaching. The Church doesn't consider him simply another of the fathers, but rather as an authentic teacher of Catholic doctrine, or as Pope Paul VI put the matter in 1974, quote, the authoritative and irreplaceable guide in philosophical and theological studies, end quote. Today my remarks focus upon the theological and metaphysical doctrine of natural law that undergirds Thomas's moral teaching. In particular, I'll consider the pivotal issue of the relation between God and the natural moral law. What is this relation? This issue is of vast importance for religion, morality, and public life, and it is definitive for the character of the natural law. Yet often the issue is clouded by portrayal of natural law as exclusively a set of rules for moral problem solving. On that sort of view, natural law would simply be a collection of protocols for solving particular moral problems and precision for moral uh, from metaphysical truth or from theology, a kind of moral problem-solving device. To the contrary, I wish to argue this afternoon that for St. Thomas Aquinas, natural law is the precondition and foundation for right exercise of practical reason. It is the normative theological and metaphysical order that undergirds, makes possible, and flows into our moral logic. On this older Thomistic view, our practical reasoning is epistemically and ontologically derived from the natural law. It is derivative of the larger cosmic story rather than supplanting it. While through our practical moral reason we actively participate in the divine government of our own actions, the precondition for this active participation is the mind's prior adequatio, or conformity to the right end. For it is knowledge of the end which is the root of right appetite, and all practical moral judgment must be conformed to right appetite. As St. Thomas writes in question 19 of the Prima Secundae of the Summa Theologiae, quote, Now in regard to the means, the rectitude of the reason depends on its conformity with the desire of a due end. Nevertheless, 
the very desire of the due end presupposes on the part of reason a right apprehension of the end. Hence, in this lecture, I present a rudimentary account of three important conclusions about God and natural law that flow from this Thomistic conception of natural law. These are the following. Proposition 1, that natural law is genuine law, which carries the ancillary implication that the doctrine of natural law is theistic. Proposition 2, that the knowledge and love of God are the capstone of natural law, even considered apart from grace. And finally, Proposition 3, that the epistemology of natural law loses nothing by acknowledging the aid we receive from grace in knowing the natural law. I first need to begin with uh, giving the traditional account of natural law, briefly address the putative separation of facts and values, and then I'll turn straight away to these three points. So what is the natural law? St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, famously adverts to the natural law when he writes, quote, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature observe the prescriptions of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the demands of the law are written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even defend them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge people's hidden works through Christ Jesus, end quote. This law, which is written in hearts and to which conscience bears witness, both through remorse and integrity, is not a law known exclusively through book learning. It is lex non scriptum, unwritten law, or perhaps more truly, excuse me, <coughs> it is law written in human nature by the finger of God. It is said to be natural for various reasons. I'm afraid I have to dip into my vede mecum earlier than I thought. <coughs> we need this filmed for, you know, Ricola. I mean, this, I have to have some testimonial of the efficacy of their product. So if I continue to cough, this is all over. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, it is lex non scripta unwritten law, or perhaps more truly, it is law written in human nature by the finger of God. It is said to be natural for various reasons, because it is the law that measures the perfection of human nature, because it is known naturally, that is, it is at root accessible to the reason of all persons. Because human persons are subject to this law by nature and not from any antecedent consent, because it is distinct both from the positive law of the state and from the canon law of the church, as well as from the lex nova, the new law of divine charity revealed in Christ. So viewed natural law is a theme of theological and metaphysical profundity. It is a providential mode of the divine government of creation, most particularly the rational creation. Regarding law generally, Thomas writes, quote, law is an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by him who has the care of the community. This from Prima Secundae, question 91, article 4. He says uh, that it is God who has the care of the community of being and who promulgates the natural law from creation. He defines the natural law as follows in question 91 of the Prima Secundae, article 2, quote, the natural law is nothing else than 
the rational creature's participation of the eternal law, end quote. Nothing else than. In the same article, Thomas defines eternal law as, quote, the very idea of the government of things in God, the ruler of the universe, end quote. We may consider natural law in a variety of ways, but when it comes to defining natural law in the strict sense, St. Thomas defines it as nothing else than a rational participation of the eternal law. The The definition of a thing is not accidental to it. All creatures are by nature subject to divine governance. They derive the inclinations to their proper acts and ends from the impress of that eternal law which is the creative ordering wisdom of God. But the subrational creation is subject to this divine governance in a diminished and purely passive way in accord with its merely physical nature. Thomas will say that subrational creatures are subject to natural law only by passive participation and similitude. This means that non-rational beings are governed by God solely by being passively subject to the divine ordering of nature. While all creatures, including human persons, derive their inclinations to their proper acts and ends through passive participation of the eternal law, rational creatures are not only passive recipients of the divine governance, but also actively participate in this governance through the light of reason. The eternal law is impressed on human nature, and the mind's natural reception of this impressed teleological order, order to the end, as giving reasons to act and reasons not to act, is a rational participation in the eternal law. This light of reason is, by its very nature, a finite participation in the divine wisdom, mediated by the impress of the ordering wisdom of God on creation. Thus, Thomas teaches in question 90, article 4, add 1, that, quote, the natural law is promulgated by the very fact that God instilled it into man's mind so as to be known by him naturally, end quote. He continues writing in Prima Secunde, question 91, article 3, add 2, that, quote, human reason is not of itself, the rule of things, but the principles impressed on it by nature are general rules and measures of all things relating to human conduct, whereof the natural reason is the rule and measure, although it is not the measure of things that are from nature. And quote. The human mind is what Thomas calls a measured measure. This means that the mind is measured by reality as the very condition for its own true judgments, which then in different ways measure actions. For us to discern the objective measure of right action, there must be a measure of such action to which the human mind may conform. In conforming to this measure, the human mind is then able to extend its judgment to govern practical conduct. This measure that transcends the human mind while remaining accessible to it is the natural law. For St. Thomas, knowledge of the truth is the root both of our contemplative and of our practical moral lives. 
Thomas maintains, as did Aristotle, that the speculative intellect by extension becomes practical. In other words, our practical moral judgments proceed from insights that are only accidentally ordered to action. Thomas articulates with precision this distinction regarding uh, the speculative and the practical in the following two quotations from the same article, question 79, article 11, of the prima pars of the Summa Theologiae. He writes, quote, Now to a thing apprehended by the intellect, it is accidental, whether it be directed to operation or not. And according to this, the speculative and practical intellects differ. For it is the speculative intellect which directs what it apprehends not to operation, but to the consideration of truth, while the practical intellect is that which directs what it apprehends to operation. In reply to the second objection, he continues writing, quote, the object of the practical intellect is good directed to operation under the aspect of truth. For the practical intellect knows truth just as the speculative, but it directs the known truth to operation. End quote. In other words, both our practical moral deliberation and our speculative consideration of reality for its own sake hinge upon our knowing the truth whether in its contemplative or practical aspect, the human mind is measured by truth founded in the eternal law. The time has arrived for a couple words about the putative opposition of fact and value. St. Thomas's emphasis on the importance of knowing the truth for our practical moral lives at times is thought to blur the distinction between facts and values. He does not accept an ironclad divide between nature and the good, between fact and value. Of course, there is a distinction between the natural species of an action and its moral species or kind, between the physical character of an act and its moral character. The man who pushes an old lady into an oncoming bus and the man who pushes her out of the way of an oncoming bus are both men who push old ladies around. But there is, there is a critical moral dis- distinction here. Nonetheless, Thomas rightly holds that the natural type or species of an act plays an important causal role in defining the moral species because it constitutes the matter of the act that we intend. And we ought not do or even intend certain things precisely because of the kinds of things they are. For example, to say that one is not killing a child but only saving a kingdom from dynastic civil war when one murders an infant heir to the throne is self-deceit. Similarly, when the calipers crush the skull of an infant in utero in a craniotomy, we cannot avoid the datum that this is a directly homicidal act directed at an innocent. It doesn't terminate in a patient with a malady whom it helps to cure, it terminates in someone who isn't the patient, not in such a way as to heal, but in such a way as to to destroy life. Isn't it impossible, however, to derive a value from a mere fact? It is true that we can't logically derive ethical conclusions from premises containing no ethical content. 
That's true. But it's false to suppose that the teleological ordering of human nature has no ethical content. To the contrary, the order of ends provides the major premise in, in moral reasoning. Nature is devoid of ethical content only if we abstract it from this ethical content. And we don't need to perform this abstraction. I can consider you all right now as simply pixels for purposes of graphic arts design, for example. But the fact I can perform the abstraction hardly transubstantiates you into uh, uh, atomic pixels, pixelations. Uh, um, so dichotomizing nature from the good is plausible only if we deny that the good is a function of natural teleological order. If we reject the enlightenment reductionism that reduces nature to matter in motion, we find no probative grounds for denaturing the good and denying natural ethical teleology, the natural order to the end. We have seen that for St. Thomas, the light of natural reason is nothing else than an imprint on us of the divine light, a rational participation in the eternal law. Just as law in the strict sense derives from the mind of the governor, so properly speaking, it prescriptively addresses the minds of those subject to it with authoritative determinations of the good to be sought and the evil to be avoided. These definitional traits of the natural law point toward a pivotal conclusion often obscured in meditations upon natural law. For the natural law is not only metaphorically law, but rather is law in the strictest and fullest sense. Here we advert to my first proposition, that natural law is true law. For many theists, the divine foundation of natural law has come to be viewed as an extra, an aspect of natural law that may be of special boutique interest to theists, but is not essentially definitive for the natural law. Hence, one major theorist of the natural law, Professor John Finnis, famously maintains, quote, the fact that natural law can be understood, assented to, applied, and reflectively analyzed without adverting to the question of the existence of God, end quote. In one respect, this is true. By nature, we know much of the content of the natural law before we realize it to be law. We do not naturally begin with an intuition of God from which we then deduce a list of commands and prohibitions. In the order of our discovery of natural law and in precision from grace, our awareness of God comes later rather than earlier. Nonetheless, the words of Yves Simone from his fine work, The Tradition of Natural Law, are pertinent here. As he puts it, quote, from this logical priority in the order of discovery, it does not follow that the understanding of natural law can be logically preserved in case of failure to recognize in God the ultimate foundation of all laws, end quote. Understandably, the designation of natural law as law will become rather shaky without reference to a promulgating divine authority. Thus, Finnis writes in Natural Law and Natural Rights, quote, natural law, the set of principles of practical reasonableness in ordering human life and human community, is only analogically law in relation to my present focal use of the term. That is why the term has been avoided in this chapter on law, save in relation to past thinkers who used the term. These past thinkers, however, could, without loss of meaning, 
have spoken instead of natural right, intrinsic morality, natural reason or right reason in action, etc. And quote. Finnis cites the famed view of Mortimer Adler that natural law is law only by what is called an analogy of extrinsic attribution. On such a view, natural law would be called law only because it provides some of the moral building blocks for positive civil law in political community. Just as we call medicine healthy because it is one of the causes of health, so on Adler's account we would call natural law law only because it contributes certain elements of true law to the positive civil law. On this Adlerian view, natural law is a kind of material contributant to law, rather than being law in the strict sense. However, from the perspective of St. Thomas, natural law is more truly law than is civil law, for civil government pales in comparison with the divine government of creation, as does human wisdom in comparison with divine wisdom, and the root principles of positive law are derived from natural law. Without doubt, natural law is a cause of positive law, but this does not mean that natural law falls short of the strict definition of law. It is an ordinance of the eternal law promulgated from the moment of creation and governing the commonwealth of being and human agency. It, indeed, is that law which naturally is most worthy of the title. By contrast with the Adlerian view, Thomas maintains, quote, the participation of the eternal law in the rational creature is properly called a law since a law is something pertaining to reason, end quote. Natural law is properly called law. If natural law were only law by a weak analogy of extrinsic attribution, we would be confronted with a natural law that were law in only the most attenuated manner. It would be law without a legislator and without promulgation, Subtracted from its root in the eternal law, its normativity would be unclear. But to the contrary, it is in the most literal sense that we are subject to natural law. We are subjects of the commonwealth of being, and the law of our being is promulgated at creation by the author and supreme governor of our being. Natural law is often thought of as equivalent to a doctrine of ethical objectivity as opposed to moral subjectivism and relativism. But if natural law were nothing but moral objectivity, it would, in fact, take us no further than the conclusions of ethical rationalism. One needn't look far to find uh, intelligent agnostic and atheist authors who affirm elements of natural moral rectitude and who insist upon an objective validity, however truncated, of certain moral judgments. But such truncated moral objectivism needn't be construed as law. It is actually more common for moral objectivists, moral objectivists excuse me, to abstract from the metaphysical and theological character of natural moral law than to affirm it. It's not Kantians alone for whom the regularity of moral phenomena fails to imply subjection to any particular authority or government. By contrast, St. Thomas, and for that matter, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in number 1954, direct us to speak of the natural moral law. This reference to law is not a mere figure of speech. 
The human intellect does not by itself transform the water of human inclinatio into the wine of lex. Rather, man falls within the jurisdiction of the divine government by virtue of his very being. Neither the being nor the natural ordering of of creation are self-originated. They are in the most literal sense possible ontologically heteronymous. That is, they have their being from another. Both our being and our order to the final end are received radically from the outside. That is to say, creatures only are because they receive the gift of existence from God. Similarly, their natures are conferred upon them at creation. There isn't a pre-creation pull soliciting prior consent, or I would be much healthier than I am, among other things. Uh, probably brighter, too. Uh, um, no, no contract can reduce the creator to a mere participant in democratic polity. This is where the presumption of secular states claiming to uh, license others to commit acts that they themselves have no moral right to perform manifests uh, errant hubris. Practical reason does not define moral truth ex nihilo. Its spending capital is received from the divine ordering of creation, and that ordering of creation is normative. It isn't a, a suggestion. The very reason for the immutability of the natural law in its primary premises is the truth that it is nothing other than a rational participation in the eternal law. Far from being a doctrine of ethical objectivity, mere ethical objectivity, to mystic natural law doctrine is rich with theological and metaphysical necessity. As an objective law that measures the perfection of human nature, the natural law is distinct from the nature that it governs. Our knowledge of the law is not merely self-knowledge. For this reason, Thomas, in his prologue to the treatise on law in the Summa Theologiae, identifies the extrinsic principles moving to good as God, law, and grace. Natural law does not mean that human nature, in the sense of the human essence and its properties, is a law to itself, absolutely speaking. If this were true, one would need only be human already to have achieved the perfection to which we are ordered through the natural law. We'd come out of, you know, slide out of the womb already perfected. It would designate, uh, natural law under these conditions would designate a zone of human autonomy in relation to the divine jurisdiction. But to the contrary, the natural law is nothing other than a rational participation in eternal law. The distinction between human nature and natural law does not mean that natural law fails to operate within human nature, nor does it mean that we fail to know the law through our own reason. Rather, it means that the being and authority of the law is extrinsic to the human reason whereby we know its content. Any norm, take a norm of grammar, is distinct from what it governs. We wouldn't say ordinarily that a grammatically correct sentence is grammar, but we would say that it is grammatical. Similarly, we don't normally say that human nature rectified from sin is the law except in a manner of speaking, right? We saw St. Paul's words, that in a way they, they, they have the law to them, themselves. Uh, but he's not saying that they are the law. He's saying that their heart bears witness to the law. 
The natural law is nothing other than the eternal law as naturally directive of the rational creature. Law as rational precept properly derives from and reflects intelligence. It proceeds from the mind of the legislator to those to whom it's promulgated. The recipient of the law receives legal precepts as reasons for conduct, reasons to do and not to do. This is to say that law is not merely physical force or threat. Yet to say that natural law is rooted in human intelligence isn't to say it is primarily or exclusively rooted in human intelligence. While the natural law is the measure of the perfection of the human mind, the human mind is not by itself the standard of its own perfection. It isn't the highest good, the summum bonum. Only the divine mind that creates human nature that impresses upon it its ordering from which its inclinations to its proper acts and ends are derived, and that so informs reason, thereby promulgates authentically natural law. It is important to observe that for Thomas, law as such, including natural law, is ordered to the common good. The common good is a good one in number, by its nature, diffusive and communicable to many, more, more irradiant in its goodness, as opposed to individual goods, which if one has them, another doesn't. Private goods are ordained to common goods, and there is an order of common goods terminating in God as the extrinsic common good of the universe. We can see the theocentric character of common good in the following lines of Thomas from the Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 3, Chapter 17. Quote, Further, a particular good is ordered to the common good as to an end. Indeed, the being of a part depends on the being of the whole. So also the good of a nation is more godlike than the good of one man. Now the supreme good, namely God, is the common good, since the good of all things depends on him. And the good whereby each thing is good is the particular good of that thing and of those that depend thereon. Therefore, all things are directed to one good, namely to God as their end. End He speaks similarly um, of the, the essential role of the common good in the moral life in Summa Theologiae Prima Secundae, question 19, article 10. Quote, But a man's will is not right in willing a particular good unless he refer it to the common good as an end. Since even the natural appetite of each part is ordained to the common good of the whole. Now it is the end that supplies the formal reason, as it were, of willing whatever is directed to the end. Consequently, in order that a man will some particular good with a right will, he must will that particular good materially and the divine and universal good formally. Therefore, the human will is bound to be conformed to the divine will as to that which is willed formally, for it is bound to will the divine and universal good. End quote. Hard to reconcile this with the lines of Professor Finnis. Uh, the universality in question is the universality of God as the ultimate common good. Thus, we have seen that natural law is true law, 
that God is promulgator and source of the natural law, that natural law is a rational participation of eternal law, that natural law serves the common good, and that God is the supreme common good, and that God as supreme common good is the final end and must be willed formally in every good act. Clearly, natural law is theocentric, and a non-theocentric natural law doctrine cannot rightly be said to be that of Aquinas. So we converge upon my last two propositions. The second proposition that the knowledge and love of God are the capstone of natural law, even considered in precision from grace, uh, we consider now. According to Thomas, by nature we share certain inclinations with all creatures. For example, to persist in being. Yet other inclinations we share with the animal creation, such as toward food or sex, while yet others derive from our specifically rational nature, such as desire for friendship or the desire to know the truth about God. As Yves Simone put it in the tradition of natural law, quote, thus everything that is right by nature is right either because the universal nature of being is such or because the universal nature of animal is such or because the rational nature is such, end quote. These inclinations are neither incomparable nor of equal dignity, but ranked according to their proximity to the final end. As Thomas puts it, a quote, according to the order of natural inclinations is the order of the precepts of the natural law. It's one of my most uh, uh, amused moments in reading um, uh, the famous uh, natural law volume of, of Professor Finnis, when he says, take seriously everything that Thomas says in 94.2, but forget that business about order. <laughs> oh, you know, uh, yeah, just take in all of the ocean, but leave out the H2O. It's very, you know, uh, uh, sorry. Um, so just as, as the human creature is more than a sum of uh, its parts, the good life for the human creature is more than a summing up of incomparable, disparate goods. Human inclinations are more or less proximate to the final end of human living. Every human good derives its compatibility, its desirability, from its relation to the ultimate good for the rational creature. As Thomas puts it in Question 1, Article 6 of the Prima Secundae, man must of necessity desire all whatsoever he desires for the last end. End quote. The final end, while at the level of nature formally distinct from the last end revealed through grace, is nonetheless God. It is the way of attending to God, natural or supernatural, that varies between imperfect natural happiness and perfect supernatural beatitude. The natural law and the lex nova of divine charity and wisdom converge under diverse formalities upon the same God. Indeed, only because we are directed to God by nature is our further and formally distinct direction to God in grace possible. As Thomas puts it in a decisively important passage of the Summa Theologiae, Prima Paris, Question 60, Article 5, quote, From natural love, from natural love, angel and man alike love God before themselves and with greater love. Otherwise, if either of them loved self more than God, it would follow that natural love would be perverse. 
and that it would not be perfected but destroyed by charity, end quote. If one's acts do not reflect this rightly ordered natural love, distinct from supernatural charity, then they violate the natural law. St. Paul's letter to the Romans insists famously, quote, for what can be known about God is evident to them because God made it evident to them ever since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. As a result, they have no excuse, for although they knew God, they did not accord him glory as God or give him thanks. Instead, they became vain in their reasoning, and their senseless minds were darkened. End quote. It is not the issue of the existence of God alone that is at stake in this passage, nor is the issue here merely that of religion as a virtue that is part of natural justice. Rather, what is involved is the very character of the natural law, for this law has as its natural capstone the love and gratitude we owe to God by nature. It cannot be plausibly supposed that the aboriginal ordering of rational nature to know and love God more than itself has no practical bearing on the natural moral life. To the contrary, this ordering of the rational nature to God is the very natural purpose of the moral life. Moral activity is not its own end. It is, even at the natural level, directed to something above itself. In the Cogigentile's Book 3, Chapter 34, Thomas reduces to absurdity the idea of moral activity as the ultimate good. He compares this notion with the idea that making war is for its own sake rather than for justice or peace, a nightmarish thought. Moreover, our happiness consists in an operation of the speculative rather than the practical intelligence. We wish rationally to possess our happiness, to be happy and not merely to be seeking or striving for happiness. Hence, for St. Thomas, our final end in the actual economy of providence is twofold. Imperfect natural happiness in the knowledge and love of God from afar, mediated by creation, and perfect supernatural beatitude consisting in direct vision of God. What all this means is that it is part of the content of the natural law itself, even apart from grace, that one love God more than oneself and above all things. And it is the derangement of this rational inclination to love God above ourselves that radically disorders the moral life. There's simply no room for doubt about the teaching of Thomas on this point. It is with natural love even prior to divine charity that we aboriginally flow forth from creation, loving our creator above ourselves. When this rational inclination is diminished, the entire ethical life shivers with tremors of alienation. Some modern moral theologians, for example, Bernard Herring, Joseph Fuchs, treat natural law as a compendium of practical exhortations drawn from reason alone, possessing no divinely normative status. This is precisely what becomes of natural law when it is disembedded from its definitively theological character. The amazing spectacle of moral theologians exalting subjective conscience above the law flows from their failure to understand natural law as genuine and proper law. For many today, natural law reduces to a collection of rules of thumb 
for a practical reason which by itself decrees the law. In this vision, man is left alone in the garden of his inclinations to devise rules befitting them. But this vision is metaphysically and morally false. Man discovers a law that is not of his own making. The light of reason which participates the eternal law discloses a path of human obedience to God. The natural law is not a mere instrument whereby moral experience is organized by human intelligence. It is the ordering wisdom of God itself as participated by the rational creature. It is in principle immutable because it is nothing other than a participation of the eternal law. And so we approach my third and final proposition, that we lose nothing by acknowledging the aid we receive from grace in knowing the natural law. St. Thomas makes clear in Prima Secunde, Question 85, Article 1, that nature is in part destroyed by sin, by original sin. He identifies three senses of human nature, the principles and properties of human nature, second, the natural inclination to virtue, and third, that gift of original justice conferred upon the first parents of the human race. Of the, fir- of the third, he says, it is destroyed by sin, original justice as conferred upon the first parents of the human race, is destroyed by sin. The second, the natural inclination to virtue, is diminished by sin, but not destroyed. After all, uh, uh, this uh, inclinational tendency is harmed at its very root when man no longer loves God above himself. And finally, uh, Uh, the principles and properties of human nature are neither diminished nor destroyed by sin. If they were diminished or destroyed, then, for example, no human beings could be in hell uh, because they would lack the principle of human nature, right? Uh, So even the damned possess the uh, principles and properties of human nature. I mean, this is the source of an unending remorse of conscience, the tendency of the rational creature to God cannot be completely eradicated. Yet our natural inclination to love God more than ourselves is diminished by sin. Being the capstone of the law, this diminution in the natural love of God is bound to affect all lesser rectitudes. Much as the weakening of a gravitational force attracting a body toward a planet diminishes motion on the part of the totality of the object, and not merely on its most advanced part. Catholics rightly emphasize the distance between themselves and their Protestant brethren on the question of original sin's corruption of human nature. But if they follow Thomas, they will distinguish what is known when we know the natural law from the conditions under which we best know this law. And for Thomas, the latter conditions unabashedly are those of grace. While root knowledge of the natural law cannot be extinguished, because the rational form and its inclination to virtue persist, even though the inclination is diminished. Nonetheless, many of the real implications of this dynamism of inclination in virtue can be obscured and diminished. Rational inclination is wounded and weakened by sin. Natural law loses nothing of its relative independence and autonomy, by the realization that in this given order of providence it is inscribed in an economy of grace. It is the work of sin to diminish 
our natural inclination toward God and the work of grace to restore it and elevate it in supernatural charity. One of the principal means of this restoration is the graced insemination of our minds with natural truths that we are wont to neglect. Many a conversion begins with humble acknowledgement and contemplation of the natural law, opening the way for greater mysteries. To know the original rectitude of nature is to taste the divine goodness and encounter the refreshing breezes of natural inclinations no longer fetid with self-love and timidity. A perfect knowledge of natural law apart from grace in this economy of providence appears chimeric owing to the darkening of the mind and will by sinful passions consequent on the fall. Thus Thomas holds in Prima Secundae, uh, Question 109, Article 3, quote, Whence man in the state of integral nature referred the love of himself and of all things to the love of God as to the end. And thus he loved God more than himself and above all things. But in the state of corrupt nature, man falls short of this according to the appetite of his rational will, which unless it be healed through the grace of God, follows its own private good because of the corruption of nature. And so we must say that in the state of integral nature, man did not need the gift of grace added to his natural endowments in order to love God above all things naturally, although he needed God's help moving him to it. But in the state of corrupted nature, man needs even for this, the help of grace healing his nature. In conclusion, what is required is less a moral calculus than the affirmation of natural law and of divine law, the conformity of the mind to the ordered whole of the synthesis of nature and grace, which exceeds the sum of its parts, a metaphysically rooted change of gestalt. The persistent obstruction to this is the discounting of natural truth as irrelevant with the subsequent implication that the moral significance of the normative divine ordering of human nature is rejected. A prudential advisement may be drawn. Religious indifferentism in the teaching of the natural law wounds its very heart, and by consequence, the life of the limbs is impaired. Whatever prudential tacking against the secular winds we do, our task is to teach and live the whole of the natural law, Abstraction from this reality, like a doctor's abstraction from the idea of health, amounts to losing the capstone and defining purpose of all the rest. Neither surgery nor moral reasoning and effort are ends in themselves. They are ordered to a health that is above them. A wounded, morbid, and moribund world begs not alone for moral guidance, but to rediscover the possibility of health a health that in every age begins with obedience to the divine government and ends in knowledge and love of God. Thank you.